everybody, and welcome to another episode of Two Strike Noise, your weekly baseball history podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, as usual, Jeff. Join. Oh wait, no, Mark. <laughs> Mark is not here at the beginning of this show. It uh, we we took a week off last week because of some because uh, of some uh, real world stuff, and uh, I think the end of the baseball season and the Mariners season was just too much for Mark. Uh, but he will be joining us later on in this episode. We have a really cool uh, interview coming up with author John Vampatella, and uh, he is the author of a book that came out just a little while ago called The Forgotten Game, which, believe it or not, is an entire book about a single game between the Yankees and the Red Sox. It's game five of the 2004 ALCS. We had a lot of fun talking with him, and it, it wasn't just about Yankees and Red Sox for that game. It's just a, a good talk about baseball Kind of like what we talk about here, uh, you know, all the time, just baseball from the 80s and 90s, particularly. But uh, that is coming up, and Mark is around for that. Uh, We also have Wax Packs Heroes coming up at the end. But before we do that, let's get into our usual segment here that we like to start out with, a little bit of batting practice. So we were gone last week, got a lot of people making sure we were alive and, and missing the podcast, so that was really cool. But yeah, had some uh, had some real life stuff come up. Not nothing important, just work stuff. I was working on the Ryder Cup and uh, was responsible for the scoring there on site. That was a very very long week. They tee off at five o'clock a.m. my time, and they usually don't get done till four or five p.m. my time. So there was a lot of work there. I don't watch a lot of golf, but. But one thing I did see, there are a lot of similarities between the way golf is covered and the way that baseball is covered. Every time somebody hit a tee shot, or for that matter, just from the fairway, there were metrics just all over the place. There was exit velocity, there was height, there was distance, spin. They had a tracker on it where you could actually see the path of the ball. All these kind of things that you see every day when you watch a Major League Baseball game, which I thought was uh, rather interesting. While the golf might not have been particularly interesting to me, it was, it was really cool to see all these things that they do with their golf broadcast that we see in baseball broadcasts as well. It also got me thinking, though, a lot about how golf is such a favorite sport of a lot of baseball players. Do you remember the the big three for the Braves when it was Maddox, Smoltz, and Glavin? Those three were absolutely obsessed with golf. They took their clubs on every single road trip. When Turner Field first opened, they actually had installed in the clubhouse a practice green and the walls were painted like the, uh, I, I forget what the famous hole is at Augusta for the uh, for the Masters, but they had like three or four holes in there, and they were always in there putting in the clubhouse when they weren't actually pitching. They also, something while I worked there, they had pre-game driving and chipping contests. And these three superstar pitchers would come out and do this. Normally when you have those pre-game exhibitions, you get like the fifth outfielder or you get the bullpen catcher or maybe even the bat boy comes out and does those things. But no, these three would come out there and they would they would put up a pin out in center field and from behind home plate, they would uh, they would chip. Well, they wouldn't chip to center field. They use a longer iron than that. Obviously, you can't use a wood in that distance, but they would do these things for you know, top golf or whatever it was back at that point. But I thought that was uh, pretty funny. Also, remember, of course, Hawk Harrelson, is the first person that that really wore what we call batting gloves. And they were actually golf gloves. We've talked about this before. He did not think he would be playing in a game. 
and went out and did not play just 18 holes, played 36 holes in one day and then went to a baseball game. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're playing tonight. And his hands were completely raw. He played 36 holes. So he wore his golf gloves up to the plate and that caught on. And that's where we get uh, people wearing batting gloves now. A couple of other things I wanted to talk about here. First, the Hillsborough Hops. They are a member of the Northwest League. They had a catcher, Nick D'Alessandro. He had the highest caught stealing rate in the league. He threw out 22 of 50 potential base stealers, which was 10% better than the next catcher. He was incredible behind the plate. Also, just as a side note, he led the league in stolen bases. 33 stolen bases. So the best catcher defensively in terms of throwing out base stealers, and then he led the league in stolen bases as a catcher. I am very curious to know if a league has ever been led in stolen bases by a catcher before that. That's something to to look at. Uh, As I mentioned, Mark not here today. He did work this, uh, we're, we're recording this, well, I am recording this on Sunday night after the regular season is over. He did work the Mariners game on Sunday. He also was there on Saturday, and I think he worked Friday. He was there basically this whole final weekend for some gut-wrenching Mariners (laughs) games, I guess. They just missed out. This was a very interesting tweet. It was tweeted by Danny O'Neill, who if you're not from Seattle, you don't know who that is probably, but he is a radio personality on the ESPN station up there in Seattle, of which the Mariners are on. And he he tweeted this out, that the Mariners in their entire franchise history, and, and still true since they did not make the playoffs this year, have more ruptured testicle injuries than they do actual playoff appearances. He quoted that there were five, and I do I could only find four. Put all this in his tweets, but he only he only had four injuries there. So, uh, and the Mariners have only appeared in the playoffs four times. So actually, it is equal. But I didn't remember some of these. 1980, Mike Parrott was beamed by Roy Smalley Jr. Not a good year for Jeff Parrott. He was a pitcher. He got the win on opening day for the Mariners and finished the season with a 1-16 record. I imagine that could maybe be partially due to some uncomfortable stuff going on down below. 1987, Joseas Manzanilla took a Manny Ramirez line drive right back at him, hit him in the mommy and daddy buttons, the nether regions. That ball was clocked at 112 miles per hour. Manzanillo was not wearing a protective cup. Wow. Ouch. That one hurt. Also, Adrian Beltre in 2009 ruptured the uh, the nether regions. And then, of course, Mitch Haniger. I think it was two years ago is when he did it. And we did make mention of it because he did part of his rehab with the Modesto Nuts, which is just not... Uh, why, how can you send that guy to the Modesto Nuts? That's not... We don't want to go too long here. I have some things that I wanted to bring up if Mark was going to be here. But we do, of course, the regular season is over. The St. Louis Cardinals are in the playoffs. They are one of the wildcard teams in the National League. And there's a player on the St. Louis Cardinals that we like to talk about. It is time for the Lars Nootbar update. So I think we might have lit a little fire underneath Lars last since, you know, it's been two weeks 
since our last podcast, but we kind of called him out. He was threatening to go 0 for September. He finally got a couple of starts, and boy, did he make use of those. Started out with a double header on the 24th, and then a game on the 25th. Between those games, Lars went four for nine with four runs scored. He knocked in four, and he had two home runs, both of which came in game two of a double header against the Cubs. Throughout the rest of the season, he did get three more starts, and then he had a couple more pinch hitting appearances. He hit in every one of those games but one. So Lars really came around. He finished the season with a 241 average. So I've decided that there is no more Lars Newt Bar. The Newt Bar cannot be set. The Newt Bar is just simply wherever Lars ends. So right now, the Newt Bar is at 241. He did end the season with three home runs, 15 RBI, 13 walks, 28 strikeouts. Hoping he's on the postseason roster. Not sure if he'll be on the wildcard roster or not, because generally you try to have more relief pitchers lined up for that let's see maybe if they can beat the dodgers who my gosh no kershaw no max muncie they're ripe for a one game upset maybe we can get a little lars newt bar deep into october all right so no debuts that i wanted to talk about this week there were a couple i had a great one for last week but again i just we just couldn't get the show done but the good news is that uh, i've turned that update that debut segment for that player into a whole episode coming up because it was great. I just kept finding stuff. You can look forward to that. I won't tell you exactly who it is. Let us get to the trivia question though. The trivia question that we asked two weeks ago was who hit the first cycle for the Texas Rangers? We got correct answers from the the usual crew, Andrew Harmer, Chris Cook, Brian Krause even went as far as to tell us who had the first uh, cycle in the Washington Senators franchise, who of course moved to Texas. So Congrats to all those. The correct answer was show favorite Oda B. McDowell. Oda B. did it on July 23rd, 1985 against Cleveland. Just a name here. The starter for Cleveland that day was Neil Heaton. Just remember that near the end of the show. On the mound for the Rangers, he went five innings and got the win. Charlie Huff started it out, went five innings. I don't know why. I don't know if he got injured because you're a knuckleballer. You should be in there a lot longer than that. Dave Rosema came in and got the rare four-inning save. Four innings pitched, two hits, one strikeout, two walks. But Odeby McDowell with the big day there from the leadoff spot. He went five for five, three runs scored, three RBIs. But there you go. Congratulations to everybody that got that right. New trivia question for you to think about until next week. And uh, here we go. Who stole the most bases in the final season of their career? And wh- and how many was it? I'll tell you this. It was not Ricky Anderson. I, I know. I, I think people would know that anyway. But I tend to sneak Ricky questions in there quite a bit. <laughs> it, I'll just go out there. It's not Ricky Henderson. It's not Vince Coleman. It's not Willie McGee. It's not Tim Raines. Think about that. Most stolen bases in the final season of their career. And how many did they steal? All right, let's let the ground screw come out and do their stuff. I see uh, Mark is, uh, he's he's a little late. He's getting warm down there in the bullpen now, getting ready to join us. As we're now going to jump into the main segment of our show. As I mentioned earlier, we were lucky enough to be joined by author John Vampatella, who has recently published a book called The Forgotten Game, Game 5 of the 2004 ALCS, Yankees at Red Sox. Now, this game, it's it's a great title because it's a forgotten game. Not really, probably for a lot of Red Sox fans, but Game 5 was sandwiched between Game 4, which was David Ortiz hitting a walk-off home run in the 12th inning to stave off a Yankee sweep. And then Game 6 is the infamous Bloody Sock game 
from uh, the pitcher who shall not be named. So really, you had two just seminal events, especially in the history of Red Sox postseason lure. Sandwiched between it was a 14-inning game that was incredible. So without any further ado, let us head into our uh, interview with author John Vampatelli. John, you've written a book uh, about the Red Sox. Uh, overcoming great odds to to beat the New York Yankees and going on to win their first World Series in almost a century. So it's safe to say you're a big Yankees fan, right? Yeah, um, kind of, sort of not. You'll fit in here then. <laughs> so tell us, uh, you're a Red Sox fan, tell us, uh, you grew up a Red Sox fan? Where did you grow up? Who did you, uh, who did you follow? goes back to my dad. My dad um, was born in New York, the son of an immigrant, and he uh, was a lifelong Yankee fan. I loved Joe DiMaggio and uh, just ate up everything Yankees. Uh, when I was four years old, he moved my family to Maine. And so as a two and three-year-old, of course, I had no knowledge of baseball. But by the time I came of baseball age as a kid, uh, my dad was rooting for the Yankees. But living in Maine, that's Red Sox country through and through. So this is before the internet, before ESPN. And the only way I could follow the Red Sox mainly were on the radio uh, and in the newspaper. And so I would fall asleep at night in the summers listening to a Red Sox game on the radio. And I would never really catch the end of them because I was too little and I would always be asleep, but I would always listen to them as I was falling asleep. And then in the morning, the first thing I would do is I would check the newspaper and being in Maine, uh, they didn't cover the Yankees really. There was a, just a little snippet in the paper about other games, but you know, everything was Red Sox. So it was pretty hard as my friends and I followed baseball it was pretty hard uh, to not pay attention to the, the local team, which was the Red Sox. So I just started to get to know the players on the Red Sox better and started paying attention to their their games. By the time started actually really getting into baseball, I was already hooked with the, with the Red Sox. My first ever baseball game was at Fenway Park uh, in 1977. And so I uh, fell right in love with the place. Just an awesome experience. And, uh, you know, it created some interesting dynamics between my dad and myself over the years and he got the better of it always until 2004 uh, where the tables have flipped a little bit who was your guy growing up as a red sox fan well it's weird because growing up you know that was uh, <clears throat> the set late 70s teams with fred lynn jim rice carl yastrzemski but i had a poster of ted williams on my wall of course i never got to see ted williams play but my favorite number was nine because of ted williams and so every sport i played in high school i wore the number nine and so i would say even though I never saw him play, Ted Williams was the guy I looked up to, but he's not at all my all-time favorite player. That's a much more recent player, uh, and that's Pedro Martinez. He's my one of my favorite athletes crossing all sports. Uh, just love everything about we, the guy. We might talk about him today. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. I really enjoyed the book, John. I, I read it uh, cover to cover, and uh, people, you know, my first thought was, how are you going to do a whole book on one baseball game? But you, you did it impressively. Every uh, inning has its own chapter. Sometimes it's batter by batter. Sometimes it's pitch by pitch, depending on how important it is. And you fill it in with all kinds of great anecdotes and stories. So I really enjoyed that. One thing I found in here that I, I honestly did not know of is that uh, you, you mentioned that Alex Rodriguez was actually ready to be traded to the Red Sox. Yep. That's a true story. He, uh, he was looking to, I mean, he was at that point, of course, in my mind, either the first or second best player in the sport, Barry Bonds being the other one, the Red Sox and Yankees were in the heat of their 
rivalry right after the 2003 ALCS where they went seven games and the Red Sox were looking to make a big move. Nomar Garcia Parra, who was one of my all-time favorites as well, was getting a little, uh, I, I don't know if I would say the Red Sox were souring on him, but they were looking to improve. And as great as he was, they wanted an upgrade. And there was really nobody better at the position. I know Yankee fans will say Jeter, even if he was better, he certainly wasn't available for the Red Sox. So the alternative was Alex Rodriguez. And so the Red Sox put together a mega deal involving several teams and and they were going to send away Garcia Parra and Manny Ramirez and get in return A-Rod and Maglio Ordonez from the White Sox, which is about as blockbuster as you could possibly get. The only catch was <clears throat> that Rodriguez would have to take a pay cut because the Red Sox could not afford him at his salary, which amazingly uh, he was willing to do. I know a lot of Red Sox fans give Alex Rodriguez a lot of grief, but the man was willing and ready to, to take a massive pay cut in order to come to Boston, he wanted to come to Boston very badly. It was the, the players association that mixed the trade. They, they said, no way. And people asked the question, well, how can they do that? Well, we have to remember he's part of a union, right? And so they thought if he takes a pay cut, that's going to impact the salaries of everybody else trickling down. So they saw it as in the best interest of the union, the best interest of the players as a whole to deny the trade. And I don't know legally how they, how they, do that, but they did. And apparently them nixing it was legal per the rules of MLB. So, so he wasn't able to be on the Red Sox. They, they couldn't complete the trade. Just a couple of months later, the Yankees in desperate need of a third baseman because Brett Boone, uh, I'm sorry, Aaron Boone, uh, who hit a game winning home run against the Red Sox in game seven of the ALCS tore his ACL playing pickup basketball of all things. And so suddenly the Yankees had a need for a third baseman. Well, a-Rod was a shortstop, not a third baseman. So what good would that do? Well, they made the deal. They traded Alfonso Soriano, who was really good for them, and they got A-Rod. But now you have two shortstops, right? You got, you got A-Rod and Jeter. So how are you going to fit them in? Well, let's be honest. A-Rod was a much, much better player than Jeter. Jeter, first ballot Hall of Famer. I got no problem with that. He was great. A-Rod is better, a lot better. He would have made the Yankees better had they put him at shortstop. But Jeter was not moving from shortstop and they kind of, everybody knew that. So Rodriguez once again, took a little bit of a personal sacrifice and agreed to play third base. He wanted to be part of the rivalry. So it turned out a rod goes to the Yankees, but yeah, he was, he was actually traded to the Red Sox and that was a done deal except the players association said no dice on that. That would have really changed the face of baseball. Uh, it would have been, it would have been completely an utterly different. So very sure. interesting talked about Jeter's range and there was a certain stat you used uh, to talk about who was a better defensive shortstop and so on. And, and Alex was by a pretty good margin. I don't yep. think people know that his Jeter won what five gold gloves. Yeah. You know, the gold glove award is, I have some issues with how they do that. And de let's just be clear. Defensive stats are very difficult in baseball to, to measure because you're in Fenway, for example, it's a, it's a really short, weird left field and it always hurts a Boston Red Sox left fielders zone rating, for example, that's uh, or range factor, right? It, it always, it always hurts those defensive metrics because uh, just of the structure of the field, you know, of the ballpark um, it, it dampens their ability to get balls. And so uh, defensive metrics are very, very challenging, but every one of them favored a rod over Jeter. But what we know about Jeter is he, he tends to make the sure plays and he's, He's Derek Jeter. And, and I'll be honest, if Jeter was a player on the Kansas City Royals, 
right? He, he would still be a very, very good baseball player, but he wouldn't be, you know, in all caps, Derek Jeter. You know what I'm saying? Um, being in New York was a huge part of what made him him. And so I'm not saying he wouldn't have been a good player, but he was, he was, he was not the player that Alex Rodriguez was either offensively or defensively. And so uh, A-Rod had a better arm. He had better range. He was a better athlete. He was, he was just significantly better. And that's no slight on Jeter because Jeter was a great player. Rodriguez was a whole notch above him though. We were talking just a couple of weeks ago about Nomar. And if Nomar could have stayed healthy, his career, I think he might even be thought of better than, than Jeter, especially offensively. You know, defensively, I'm not sure if, if Nomar was any better than, than Jeter, but offensively, I mean, Nomar, when he was healthy, was incredible. Getting into 2004, the, the Red Sox trade him away, and, and uh, Theo Epstein, I believe he said that, you know, trading him away gained them five outs, which is what they needed the year before. You as a Red Sox fan, how did you, how did you take trading Nomar away? It was hard because he was one of my favorite players, and you're totally totally right Jeff when he was in at his best you look at his offensive numbers and you guys being stat guys I mean he had 372 one year he had I mean he was a monster at 357 another he was a phenomenal offensive player defensively it was a struggle at times he, he made he was the kind of guy who could make the great play but still needed a lot of work at shortstop and I think the thing that was was tough was by the if recall the conversation just a minute ago about them trading him for a rod now that didn't go through so he ended up back with the Red Sox. But, you know, I, I, like most players who have just been dealt away, if you know the team is trying to trade you, you're probably, you're probably going to feel a little resentment, you know, not feeling not wanted. And so his attitude, I would say, fell off a cliff a little bit. And so you ended up seeing this during, I forget the date of the game, but he was still in the Red Sox for the first part of the year. And there was a game against the Yankees where it was a famous game where Jeter dove into the stands and made a, you know, that legendary catch in that same game, there were just photos of, of Garcia Parra in the dugout moping, like literally moping. And it was at that moment that you could see kind of the difference between the two players, or I would, I would say that the difference between them really, really showed up and it, it, it was highlighted and made it, made it look like one guy is this legendary player and the other is just a malcontent. Even as a Red Sox fan, I could see like this, this is not going to end well. Like there's something not right with him. So I hated it. But I also felt like trading him was probably the right move. And it turned out to be the right move. They ended up winning the World Series, and Orlando Cabrera came, came back in that deal, and he was, he was very good for them. Uh, they got Doug Mankiewicz, you know, in a trade. And so their infield defense really improved a tremendous amount. As we look at this year's Red Sox, we can see why infield defense is so important. They're, they're giving away two, three runs a night these days with bad defense. And I know baseball is geared towards offense, but when, you, when you're making – one, two, three errors a game. It, it's really hard to win. And Garcia Parra was not up to the task defensively. They made a lot of great improvements. So as a fan, really hard to see Nomar go because I love the guy. But from a baseball standpoint, I got the trade. I understood it. And I thought it made sense at the time. Can we talk a little bit about your favorite player, Mr. Pedro Martinez? I would love to talk about Pedro Martinez. You make some really good arguments for his true greatness in the book. Some numbers out there that will blow people away. I was not aware of, of all of these numbers. I mean, I always, I watched Pedro growing up and he was always amazing to me. His numbers are, are pretty impressive. The thing about Pedro is what, what hurt him was he didn't have a, a, a really long career compared to some of these other guys. 
Uh, and he didn't pitch quite as many innings because he, I mean, he would be dominant today, like in terms of innings, because nowadays starters yeah. only go five, five or six innings right. and he would routinely go seven innings. But that was back in the day when, you know, your dominant starter was expected to go eight or nine. Right. And so he didn't have the, the innings that some of these other guys did. When you look at his numbers, it was ab- absurd. If you compare him to, to Sandy Koufax, his, his uh, ERA, for example, is very similar to Koufax in his prime or Bob Gibson in his prime. But we have to remember that Koufax and Gibson were playing in an era where far fewer runs were scored than in the era. I mean, Pedro pitched at, in the peak of the, I guess we'll call it the steroid era, right, where, where runs were just coming left and right. And so the key stat for me for Pedro is what's called ERA+. Plus. And what that does for fans who are listening who don't know what that is, you know, you always wonder – okay, pitcher's got an ERA, but he pitched in a certain era. That's not what ERA stands for or an average in the word era. So you have to make sure you're explaining what they are. But like in the the time period in which Bob Gibson pitched, runs were, they just didn't score as many runs. So his ERA, while still incredibly impressive, was up against, it it came in in a time of much lower offensive output. Pedro pitched and he put up ridiculous Bob Gibson, Sandy Koufax like numbers in an era where teams are scoring six runs a game. So ERA plus takes into account the, the era in which they played and the ballpark in which they pitch. And Pedro's ERA plus numbers are crazy great at his peak compared to these other great pitchers. And that's the basic argument that I make that when you take the peak of, of all these pitchers, again, I won't argue that Pedro's career was better than say Roger Clemens's or, or, or Tom Seavers, right? But at his best, Pedro's numbers are beyond anything anybody else ever did. And so to me, he's the, he's the greatest pitcher ever in the sense of when they're at their best, nobody's, nobody's pitched better than Pedro. Uh, and I think the numbers back that up when you take, take into account strikeouts per nine innings, again, in a time when strikeouts were a lot fewer than they are today. When you look at ERA plus just absolutely off the charts numbers. I wanted to talk about Pedro and the and this game specifically game five of the of the two thousand and four LCS because it was a really gutty performance because coming into this game of course Yankees Yankee fans chanting who's your daddy to to Pedro all the time and you know there was good reason for that at that point thirty one starts against the Yankees in his career the team was eleven and twenty in those starts in two thousand and four he was one and three with a five point two nine ERA combined both regular and postseason against against the Yankees and uh, he kind of had a he kind of had a he didn't have a, a an actual pitch limit but something when he would hit that 100 pitch mark he he wasn't the same Pedro Martinez and this 2004 coming off of 2003 when Grady Little you know just took a ton of heat for his pitching you know his bullpen management his overall pitching management what struck me as I rewatched this game this week was Tito Martinez in his first year in Boston, just the patience and really the balls to just leave Pedro in there. We have to remember at that point, like 2003 was his last great season. And so by 2004, he wasn't, again, if we were typing this out, he, in all caps, he wasn't Pedro Martinez anymore. He was still a very good major league pitcher, but he wasn't the guy that we were just talking about. And so, you know, his fastball was no longer 97. It was 92. You know, he still had a great curve, a great change, and he was still could, could put the ball where he wanted to, but he didn't have quite the same stuff anymore. And he relied a lot more on guile and guts, you know, than just dominant stuff. 
still, again, still very good, but he was hittable at that point in his career. And so as the game wore on, Francona was, was, was deciding, do I keep him in? Do I not keep him in? You know, we, we watched in the sixth inning, we watched him go through the same thought process as Grady little did in the eighth inning of 2003. For those who don't remember in 2003 game seven, Red Sox are up five, two after seven, Pedro had pitched beautifully. And that would have been to that point in his career, kind of his signature game. And, uh, surprisingly to everybody, he came out for the eighth inning. And I was actually on the phone with my dad because my dad called me up to say, son, I just wanted to say congratulations. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, he said, well, the Red Sox are finally going to do it. I'm like, dad, this is Red Sox Yankees. It's a, you know, this game is not over. And he's like, no, no, Pedro's pitching too well. I'm like, I, I can't believe you're calling me to do this. Well, Pedro started giving up hit after hit. And I kept waiting for Grady Little to come out and get him like all of Red Sox nation was. And, and he never came out and got him. And by the time Jorge Posada hit a game tying double, I literally just hung up on my father. Like I did, I couldn't even talk to him anymore. So I just, I just hung up on him. And of course the Yankees tied the game and went on to win it in 11 innings on, on Aaron Boone's Homer. So game five of the 2004 ALCS, we're in the sixth inning. Now they're kind of facing the same situation. Pedro's getting to that hundred pitch mark. Yankees are putting runners on and up comes Jeter. And we're like, I can't believe he's going to leave him in. And Jeter hits that blue double gives the Yankees the lead. And incredibly Francona still kept him in. <laughs> and we were like, what is going on? Like, did he not like you guys are students of baseball history. It's like, did Francona, does he not read any books? Does he not pay any attention to what's going on? Uh, what, what happened last year? Anyway, he finally got out of that inning and the Red Sox ended up winning the game. So it kind of bailed out Francona, but he was making the same, he was facing the same, same situation that, uh, that little was, and it had the same disastrous results. He just happened to win the game. So he got bailed out, but uh, Pedro, I'll never, I'll, I'll never have a bad word to say about him. He pitched his guts out. He gave it everything he had. He, he just hit that hundred pitch mark, which for him by that point in his career was kind of the witching hour, you know, for him. And, and it was like, you know what, he just didn't have much left in the tank. You know, he managed to finally get out of the inning. We both mentioned the, uh, the Derek Jeter kind of blue double down the right field line that scored three, uh, three for the Yankees. And the third run there being Miguel Cairo that had a nice slide at home, score the run. Uh, also, later in the game, David Ortiz, known speedster, of course, tries to steal second for some reason and is thrown out on a questionable call. This game lasted five hours and 49 minutes as it was. Yep. No instant replay at this point. How long do you think this game would have taken in today's oh, man. <laughs> today's atmosphere? Well, yeah, that, there, there were a couple of calls that, that were, were very close. That was a big one. Yeah, I mean, instant replay, if you want to have a conversation about instant replay and the way it works in baseball, I'd be happy to have that one. I, I think it, it would have added to the game and it would have, you, you know, you want to get the calls right. So I get the purpose of instant replay, right? And you hate to see a bad call, you know, cost somebody a game, but it certainly would have dragged out the game for sure. And in the moment, like, I think, I think you could tell that Ortiz was probably safe, but it was, a, it was a close enough bang, bang call that I wouldn't, you know, probably the call would have stood because instant replay is supposed to have like overwhelming evidence to, to overturn it. I think most of us were wondering why was Ortiz running in the first place? You know, he's, he's not exactly a base stealing threat. <laughs> yeah. You don't expect in, in late, late game situations for David Ortiz to be trying to take an extra base for sure. David Ortiz and the Spanish inquisition, both. Yeah. Never saw him coming. <laughs> exactly. Let's continue on with the game. I kind of want to fast forward to the, to the end of the game and coming out to pitch three innings of relief was Tim Wakefield knuckleballer. 
yep. in the game still. The captain for the Red Sox, Jason Veritek, who had caught a total of three innings of Wakefield that entire season and admitted that he just he can't catch a he can't catch a knuckleball and Doug Mirabelli was kind of Wakefield's caddy three pass balls in one inning nobody can really blame him but he still gets out of it and he ends up getting the win do you think Wakefield was just going to be in the game until it was over one way or the other <laughs> probably and and you know the the Yankees were running out of bullpen arms too so Esteban Loaiza was probably going to go as long as it needed to go as well. Um, that's a tough situation because I think the starting pitchers for the, you know, potential game six were already in New York. So they weren't even available to, to pitch in game five anyway. So both teams were running out of people to put out there. So the one nice thing about Wakefield is as a knuckleballer, he probably could have gone all night long. And so I think the Red Sox had an advantage there. You're right about Veritek. That was a tough spot for him to be in. Typically, you know, Doug Mirabelli was catching him. And in fact, during the season, they, they reacquired Mirabelli because uh, the Red Sox catchers were having such a hard time catching Wakefield. The knuckleball is just a, when it's on, it's a really, really impossible pitch to hit, but it's a really tough pitch to catch and poor Wakefield. Like you could see, you know, as you rewatch the game, I mean, you could see beads of sweat forming on his forehead, like, Oh, please, please, please just let me catch this. And there were a couple of more that got by him aside from the three you referred to that just didn't get far enough away for runners to advance. So it was every pitch was an adventure in that inning. And I've described it this way to people that as a Red Sox fan, I've never had a bigger white knuckle ride of an inning than that, because every single pitch you're thinking it's not just can the Yankees hit it, but can Veritech even catch it? Right. And the Yankees are going to score the winning run on a, the guy gets to first base by pass ball on a strikeout. He's going to get the second on a pass ball. He's going to get the third on a pass ball. He's going to score on a pass ball. It's going to be the most unearned run you've ever imagined. Right. And that's how the Red Sox are going to be eliminated by the Yankees. Right. That's how this is going to end. And incredibly, incredibly, they got out of that inning unscathed, which I, to this day, I will still never understand how that happened. And it was kind of at that moment that I thought to myself, you know, maybe, just maybe, this is going the Red Sox way. Because in the past, 100%, that would have sunk the Red Sox against the Yankees. And it didn't this time. So I thought, you know, may, maybe the tide is turning here. Maybe they have a shot to win this. Was this the, was this the year they traded for Mirabelli? I think he was on the Padres. And, and just every time Wakefield was out there, there were five or six pass balls. So they're like, just whatever it takes, get us Doug Mirabelli. Yeah. yeah, and the funny story is he uh, they made the trade and he flew to Boston. And by the time his flight arrived, the Red Sox game was just about to get underway. And he had to get from Logan Airport in Boston to Fenway Park. And, you know, like any major city, traffic's a nightmare. And so they actually had a police escort to zip him to Fenway to get him to the game so he could catch Wakefield. It, it was, and he was changing into his uniform in the police car. It was the craziest, you know, most ridiculous scenario, something straight out of Hollywood. So really the question becomes, why wasn't Mirabelli in the game at that point, right? Why didn't they have him catch Wakefield in those innings? And I think the big, the big issue is they needed, they needed Veritex bat in the, in the game because he was a much, much, much better hitter. And so they were just trying to take a chance that he would somehow manage to catch Wakefield enough. But you think about Veritek, you think about the, him and Posada, both Jorge Posada for the Yankees, they caught all these innings night after night for five and a half, four and a half hours into the wee hours of the next morning. I mean, these guys were animals. It was, it was incredibly impressive. Just their stamina, 
their athleticism. They, they were really amazing. I, I, I used to be a catcher. And uh, so I really appreciate what catchers can do. And they were both incredible in that series. I've got a note here that, that Ortiz is the only player in, in history to have two walk-off hits in the postseason on the same day. Right. Because yep. of these yep. games, <laughs> yep. I mean, Yankees and Red Sox don't play quick games together anyway, but let alone right. in the postseason. And then when you're going, uh, you know, so long with uh, with extra innings. Yeah, those were just I got tired watching them on oh, the West man, Coast. I'll, oh, I'll tell you. Well, being so they start these games at eight o'clock at night. Right. And, you know, so when you're talking five and a half hours, like it, it is well into the next day, technically. And it's grueling. Right. These aren't these aren't relaxing games to watch now as a casual baseball fan or as a, as a serious baseball fan, but of another team where you don't really have a rooting interest, you can still get caught up in, in the intensity of the game. But if you're a fan of the Yankees and Red Sox, you are dying with every pitch. And it is, I mean, all I did was sit on the couch and watch the game and it was completely exhausting. Right. And then you have to get up and do it the next day. And I'm like, what am, what am I supposed to like work? You know, like, how is this supposed to happen? Right. And so it was, it was, I felt like I had been in the game, you know, watching these and, um, I'm sure Yankee fans feel the same way. Uh, a little bit about uh, Big Pappy. Uh, he, it's interesting to me, and I was reading how uh, he was kind of a, almost an afterthought at first base. I wouldn't, maybe not an afterthought, but he wasn't their first choice to uh, bring him in and, and start playing him at first base. Of course, he turned into an absolute legend. But when they first brought him in, they didn't even play him all the time. That's true. They, they, had, they were looking for first base help, and they picked up Jeremy Giambi. That I think they envisioned him, you know, Ortiz was a good hitter for the twins when he was young, but there wasn't really an indication that he was going to be, you know, David Ortiz mega right. star. And, and, you know, otherwise the twins wouldn't let him go. Right. And so they got him for a song and um, Pedro Martinez was instrumental by the way, in, in the Red Sox acquiring Ortiz, he really recommended him. And, and uh, so the Red Sox went out, picked him up, but you know, again, they didn't think enough of him to, to start him. Eventually he got, a, he got shot and, you know, performed very well. And so, so he ended up being obviously, you know, a, a tremendous player for many, many years for the Red Sox. And it'll be interesting to see whether he, he makes the hall of fame because I think Edgar, Edgar Martinez is the only DH to be in the hall of fame, you know, strict kind of strictly DH. I, I think Ortiz has a legit shot. Um, he certainly has the resume for it. Um, and I think now that Edgar Martinez kind of broke that barrier, I think Ortiz probably gets in. He should, I mean, he, you know, it's not just his, his overall record, but you look at what he's done in the postseason. The the 2013 World Series where he hit like almost 700 in that series. He was you know against the Cardinals, ridiculous. You just couldn't you couldn't get the guy out. So this, but this was the start really. 2003 2004 is really the start of David Ortiz becoming this monster player. It's fu it's funny how baseball works. You know, maybe if he stayed with the Twins, not yeah, this doesn't happen. Well, obviously it doesn't happen for the Red Sox because he's not on the team. But like, does he ever? reach superstardom with the twins. I don't know. Like he, he was obviously a, a, an excellent hitter and he became a legendary player, but like we were talking about Jeter with, you know, if he was playing for Kansas city or Milwaukee, like he doesn't become like Derek Jeter. Like, I don't know. Does Ortiz ever, ever become David Ortiz? Does he become an all-star? Does he become a legendary figure? It's hard to know. So like players have to have a combination of the ability and the right opportunity to come along. And then they have to take advantage of that. And Ortiz definitely had all that, all the stars aligned for him. Uh, I wanted to point out a little portion of the book here. I'm going to read it 
kind of gives you a good idea of the Yankee lineup with A-Rod, Sheffield, and Matsui. And this is straight out of the book. I'm quoting. They combined for 338 runs scored, 196 extra base hits, 113 home runs, and 335 runs batted in over the course of the 2004 season. They were absolutely stacked up and down the lineup. And uh, it was a tough lineup to get out. So, you know, when you talk about Pedro giving up four runs and, and it being a gutsy performance, it really was. And don't forget, up until game four of that series, I mean, they mauled Red Sox pitching. I mean, they, the numbers for those guys in that series were unbelievable. So they, they were just pummeling Boston pitching. And then if the Red Sox finally managed to corral them a little bit and hung in there the rest of the series. But that, that Yankee team, you know, they're coming at the end of their dynasty, right? And, uh, but they were still awesome. I think what did them in ultimately was their pitching. You know, they, they just didn't quite have the horses outside of really Mucina. And so I think they, that's where they struggled. But, but that lineup was absolutely fearsome. So here's, here's a question for you guys, right? Off the top yeah. of your head, in that game, of guys who played in that game, how many and who are in the Hall of Fame? All right, so we got Pedro, we got Jeter, uh, you got Mariano Rivera. Yep. The fourth one's a little tricky. It's not Joe, you can't count Joe Torre because he, he was managing yeah. at the time. So we're talking about playing. And, and, they, and they appeared in the game or no? Yep, yep. They actually participated in the game. I'm, I'm going around the horn. Posada's yep. not in. Nope. Uh, I mean, you can make a lineup of unbelievable players from that game who aren't in the hall of fame right yeah i'm assuming it's got to be a pitcher boy i don't know i'm, I'm kind of stuck on the on the fourth one yeah what Is do you think Cena in the hall yep there you go yep. he started he the got, game yeah he got recently elected yeah so that's the one that always trips to fill up because you know you don't you don't think of a guy like him as a hall of famer at least i don't uh, he's obviously had a tremendous major league career right he was a very 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 good pitcher a pros pro i think i use that phrase in the book he was a pros pro but i don't think of him at all at the, in the same league as a pedro martinez type pitcher right so he's just one of those guys that people kind of forget about oh he was he's actually in the hall of fame he was you know he had a very 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 good pitcher for a very long time and that was sufficient to get him in the hall of fame so yeah he's the guy that most people kind of leave out when i ask this ask this question but yeah you, then you think about the guys who are are not in the hall of fame there's that's a yeah. a-rod Manny Ramirez, Ortiz, though Ortiz probably will get in, but he's not in right now. You know, Sheffield, Bernie Williams, Posada. I mean, there's a ton of really good, great players who aren't in the Hall of Fame from that. From Just that borderline game. guys, yeah. We yeah. have that discussion all the time of, you know, Mark is, as I said, a Nolan Ryan fan. I'm a Ricky Henderson fan. Those are two Hall of Famers that are in the upper echelon of Hall of Famers. And then you've got Jack Morris, High right. Pockets Kelly, you know, some of these guys that, <laughs> people, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. you know, they are, they absolutely deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. Not everybody can be the best that has ever been. Right. But uh, yeah, I mean, there are, there are a lot of people. I like to throw John Olerud in there just because, I mean, that guy was so good at everything he did. And he, uh, he was a very good player. The yeah, Washington sure. State Cougar like I am. So I like right. that. <laughs> right. But yeah, and that was actually a big part of, uh, of that series that Alex Rodriguez actually mentioned on a, on a telecast just last week, they asked him about this series, the 2004 series. He said, one of the biggest moments was when Olerud got hurt and they had to play Tony Clark at first base. And uh, so that ended up being a, a big blow for the Yankees. Although Olerud wasn't great that year. I still think he was better than Tony Clark at that point. And so that ended up being a, a loss, but he was a so he was a solid player. Also. I've got a question for you. Uh, okay. I, did, I did a little digging here um, because the Yankees and the Red Sox, obviously bitter rivals, but quite a few players have played for both teams. Can you tell me any, can you name the list of players that uh, participated in this series that 
put on both a Red Sox and a Yankee uniform? Oh, wow. And that, from that series, uh, let's see. Um, how long? Give me, give me the number of players that's on the list. There are 11 players that I found. From that game that played for both teams? Okay, so we mentioned John Olerud, who was hurt. So okay. he didn't. he's not included he didn't there. Play, but, but on the rosters yes. for those two teams. Wow. Was Alan Embry one? Yes. Was Mike Timlin one? No, and I thought he, he was. Never, he never pitched for, okay. Uh, Tom Gordon, definitely. Yep. Now, now I'm going around the horn. Not Veritek, uh, not Kevin Millar, not Pokey Reese, I don't think. Nope. Not, not Bellhorn. Nope. Did Orlando Cabrera play, ever play for the Yankees? Nope, I, I looked no, that I one up too, because I could picture yeah. him in pinstripes, but nope. Yeah, so, so, so can I. Uh, I don't think Bill Miller, uh, it wasn't Manny, it wasn't Trot Nixon. It wasn't, oh, Johnny Damon was one yep, for sure. Yep, fine. Uh, so for the Yankees, you're, you're talking about Sheffield, no. Matsui, no. Bernie Williams, no. A-Rod, he doesn't really count, does he? Even though we just talked <laughs> nope. about how he got traded. Um, uh, certainly not Jeter. Uh, Tony Clark was one. Yep. Uh, Mike Mucinan, no. You said Tom Gordon, not Esteban Loiza. You've got Gosh. two position players, and then the rest are, are pitchers, are which pitchers. might be a little bit harder. Yeah, because I'm trying to think of all the pitchers that that played in that that played in that game. It wasn't Wakefield? Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a great. That's a great question. At least I got a few. Yeah, no, so, you you did. You got you got more than I would have gotten. So Doug Mankiewicz also played for the Yankees. Oh, did he? I did not realize that. Okay. And then John Olerud, who of course was hurt, but then right. the rest are, are pitchers. Uh, John or is John Flaherty a catcher or is he? He's a catcher. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so John Flaherty, Romero Mendoza. Oh yes, of course. How do I forget him? Uh, let's see. We uh, Paul Quantrill. Mike yep. Myers. So you got a couple of tough lefties there in Myers and oh, Embry. Yeah, I forgot all about that. And Myers. then Derek Lowe, who had a, I forgot completely that Lowe pitch for the Yankees. Yep. He Oh he, man. He was there. I don't think he was there very long, but he was there. I, right. That's a great that's a great question. And then uh, my final one here is uh two players for, that were in this game that played in this game went on. They're gonna be managers in the postseason this year. This one should be a little bit easier. Uh, managers. Oh man. Now, now I'm, they're going to be managing in the, Oh, Dave Roberts obviously is one. Um, they'd be managers in the postseason. The other one's probably obvious, right? It is pretty obvious. Once it's I tell you, once I, I tell yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now, so now, now I'm struggling here. Um, <laughs> he was on the Red Sox. Both of them okay. were on the Red Sox and right, so, uh, they're both managing in the same division. Oh, uh, Gabe Kapler. There you go. Yep, Giants yep. and the Dodgers. Yep. Two okay. best records I think in baseball. Actually, uh, John, could you? Uh, I'm going to promise you that every single one of our listeners is going to buy the book. Can you tell us where the best place is that we can get a copy of the Forgotten Game? You can get it in two places. I mean, I ho- I don't know about local bookstores. I'm hoping that it's in local bookstores. Probably the two best places are the place everyone goes, which is Amazon. You can find it on Amazon, or you can go to my website, which is johnvampatella.com. The last name is just as it sounds. It's an intimidating last name because it's long, but it's super phonetic. So vampatella with a v uh johnvampatella.com you can order it there either one is fine uh it doesn't matter to me where where you order it if you if you want uh if you want a signed copy you can't do it through amazon you'd have to do that by ordering through me and i'd be happy to send you one of those and we'll uh, we'll put all that in the show notes as well so anybody sure. that i'll just i'll just i'll just in my part here by just saying that that it was a it was a really fun book to write and I'm grateful for the feedback I've gotten from folks like you, um, other folks who've said, you know, I don't know, I didn't know how you could pull off writing a book about basically one game, but it was really, really fun. And as a fan, rewatching the game a bunch of times to be able to 
get every detail and, you know, right. Was a blast. You know, I'm really grateful that I was able to sprinkle in, you know, stats and baseball strategy and stories and anecdotes and, and all these things that, that like fans talk about during the course of a game, because you guys have probably been to a million baseball games. You know, you don't just sit there and, and watch each pitch. You're always talking about stuff going on. Oh yeah. This guy's up. You remember when, right. That's the conversation that you have as a fan watching a game. And so I tried to make it like a fan experience, you know, uh, what it was like to be actually, it's like, I'm there and I, and I'm, and I'm seeing the game unfold on the pages and we're having all these great baseball side conversations, uh, that fans would have. So it was really fun. And, uh, I'm, I'm grateful that you guys have looked at it. I'm grateful that we get a chance to talk about it. So I appreciate it. All right. So uh, we have got a little thing that we do with uh, our guests when they come on the show. It's called Wax Packs Heroes. Wax Pack Hero! Gotta pull a Wax Pack Hero! And what we do is we open a pack of old baseball cards, generally from the Wax Pack era. And uh, we like to just talk about the players that we pull. We'll also look up their war of the year of the card, and we'll total that. And then we also have a couple of uh, a couple of different ways that you can add to that total. One, if they have got any kind of facial hair, which they generally do at this point, you get an extra tenth of a point of war. If they are wearing uh, eye black or flip down sunglasses, anything like that, you're going to get an extra point of war. If they are wearing real stirrups that we can see a sanitary oh, sock nice. underneath, nice. extra point of war, extra tenth nice. of a point of war. But if they're wearing those two and ones, minus a tenth of a point of war. <laughs> We're big fans of stirrups right. here. Also, if uh, you're wearing a sweatband that has got your jersey number or better yet, your caricature on it, those MIMS bands that Tony Gwen and, and, uh, Jack Clark and some other players wore, you get an extra tenth of a point of war. And if you are now in the Hall of Fame, you get a whole extra point of war because that's awesome. Nice. Nice. All right. So I've got a pack of 1988 tops here. Now, I did just feel the gum break in here. So that's my bad. But we're going to. We, uh, on these guest uh, appearances, uh, John, we send the gum to the contestants. So, <laughs> so um, I'm going to get a broken piece of gum. Awesome. Yeah. That's, that's my bad. All right. So we're going to get started here, and your very first card is uh, with the Texas Rangers. It is Pete O'Brien. All right. Way to go, Pete O'Brien. I don't think he has much by way of war, I, don't, I wouldn't imagine. Uh, I'm not I, I'm not sure that, uh, that he might. He had a good stick. Now, he's got real stirrups on right away, though, so that's, that's a good uh, starting point. Nice. Pete O'Brien uh, was the very first, quote-unquote, big free agent signing for the Seattle Mariners. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm looking him up now. He's he, he wasn't bad. He, he wasn't bad at all. I, I just don't remember him. And uh, I remember Pete O'Brien. He was in a trade in. Uh, he came over with uh, with Jerry Brown and Oda B. McDowell to the Indians for Julio Franco. Oh wow! That was uh, I, I remember that trade. But uh, let's see. In 1988, uh, Pete O'Brien did Pete O'Brien things. 272 average. Uh, 16 home runs, 71 RBI, an OPS plus of 111. So I think you're going to do okay here. Yeah, that's not bad. That's a pretty good, pretty good season. That's a war of right? 3.1, which is very good. Yep. So that's uh, plus you get the tenth of a point of uh, war for the stirrups. That's 3.2. <laughs> nice so, start. Yeah, that is a good start right there. Yep. All right. 
Your uh, next player, this is uh, this is one of Mark's favorite Astros of all time. It is Kevin Big Mouth Bass. That's not bad either. Yeah. Now one I, of my I, favorites of all time. Now I think yeah. I forgot to mention though that uh, you, we do also give points from. Uh, oh, I said facial hair, but if you have got a Tom Selleck like mustache, we are willing to give two tenths of a point. And <laughs> right. Kevin Bass just has such. Uh, nice. Such a sort of uh, mustache. What, what, what would you do for like a Raleigh Fingers handlebar mustache? Uh, it's still two, but we we okay. do kind of have a Hall of Fame, and and he is definitely <laughs> in there. So <laughs> excellent. All right, so let's see. Kevin Bass in 1988 was with Houston. Still hit 255. Boy, it sounds a lot like Pete O'Brien here. 14 home runs, 72 RBI, a 105 OPS plus. So literally uh, the same kind of year as Kevin Bass. Uh, he had a war of 2.2. Yep. He does have real stirrups, and he has got that mustache that worth, is worth two-tenths of a point. So that's a 2.5 for you. Nice. He also had 31 steals that year. He was, he was, he was a good player. Wow. I didn't, I didn't even see that. That was his career high. But, yeah, he's got a yep. lot, 151 stolen bases. Yep. Oh, wow. He's the cousin of James Lofton, the wide receiver. All right. Weird. <laughs> nice. I swear we've pulled his card many times, but I don't remember that fact coming up. All right. So now you've got a Hall of Famer. This All is right. your first. It's an all-star card. He's got a mustache, and it is none other than Tony Gwynn. Oh, that's big time. Yeah. Go. I'm flying here. Yeah, you could be setting a record here, John. Yeah. Yep, this we're is a great start. This is uh, a good start here. Uh, so this our, wasn't this wasn't his best year, but I'll still take it. I'll yeah, still I, take it. I think you'll take Tony Gwynn's worst year if you can. Do, yep. <laughs> if you yep. can, he only led the league in hitting with a three thirteen average, <laughs> on base of three seventy three, slugging of four fifteen for an OPS plus of one twenty eight. Not bad. Twenty six stolen bases. We like to talk about how quick Tony Gwynn was earlier in his career. And uh, all of this equates to a war of 3.4. He's got a mustache. That's 3.5 and is a Hall of Famer. So that is a 4.5. Nice. The year before, he had an 8.6 war. So I missed him, missed his best by one <laughs> year. But I'll take it. I'll take it. We're off to a flying start here. Yeah. I remember the, the, the big arguments back in those days was who was a better hitter, him or Wade Boggs. Right. And it wasn't an easy call because they were both ridiculously great. We, we've talked many times about the, the Tony Gwynn stats about, I think he's struck out against the Braves big three, like three times in his career or something like that. I mean, just ridiculous stats. Yeah, he was awesome. All right. So you're, you've got back-to-back Hall of Famers here. And wow. This guy, this guy has got a, a two-tenths of a point of mustache. He also has real stirrups. And if I could see the front of his sweatbands, I know he used to wear those Mims bands, but I can't see it. Okay. But you have got Eddie Murray with the Baltimore Orioles. Nice. Nice. He's one of those guys. We were talking about different levels of Hall of Famer. I wouldn't put him in the Tony Gwynn category of Hall of Famer. Like Tony Gwynn to me is an all, all-timer, right? I would say Eddie Murray is more like the Jack Morris type. Solid player just for a really long time. But I'm happy to have him. Let's put I it that way. I think he's one of those guys that as this pod, you know, we're in our third year of this podcast, I have definitely grown to appreciate him a lot more. Just like Rick Sutcliffe. Yes. Digging into Rick Sutcliffe's stats and, you know, his career as we keep pulling him and talking about him, I've really grown to appreciate him a lot more. 
And I think Eddie falls in that category. This is a typical Eddie Murray year, which is great. Didn't lead the league in anything, but he, he slashed 284, 361, 474 for an OPS plus of 136, 28 home runs, 84 RBI, and that equates to a war of 3.2. He's got the two tenths of a point of mustache, the real stirrups. So that brings you up to 3.5, and he's a Hall of Famer. So another 4.5. Nice. <laughs> Ow. Nice. All right, next, well, here, you're, you're going to finally get grounded a little bit here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, pitcher for the Montreal Expos, it's Neil Heaton. Neil Heaton, all right. I remember that name. I don't think he's related to Patricia. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I remember Neil from the Pirates more than the Expos. Yes. But... Right, well, I, I'll just say this is probably not his best season. <laughs> so I don't think I'm going to get much help this year. In well, fact, yeah, this might end up hurting me. Yeah, so we don't put a whole lot of stock in wins and losses or ERA here. Uh, we ERA plus, you mentioned it earlier. That's that's one that we look at quite a bit. Three and ten mark with a four point nine nine ERA. That's a seventy two ERA plus. Ouch. So <laughs> yeah, you might take of a bit of a hit here. That is a minus point eight WAR. Oh. oh. <laughs> Now, Neil, you're killing me here. The good news is he's got a mustache and he's got real stirrups. So that'll only be a minus 0. 0.6. All right. All right. Let's not have too many more of those. They can't all be Hall of Famers. All right. So that takes you to 14.1. We're getting into what are referred to as commons at this point. <laughs> uh, I remember this guy because he was on the Yankees when Ricky was. It is pitcher Charles Hudson. Right. Uh, real stirrups and a mustache. You got that going right off the bat. And again, he looks great in a Yankee. Whatever you think of the Yankees, guys look really good in Yankee pinstripes. Uh, they're yeah, just a great looking uniform. Sharp. 1988 was uh, Hudson's second and final year with the Yankees. He went 6-6, six and six, 4.49 ERA, good for an 88 ERA plus. And all of that equates to a war of 1.1 plus the stirrups and the mustache. So that's a 1.3 in the positive for you. Yeah, that's not bad. It shows you a little about how different the game is, right? That a guy with those numbers, like 88 ERA plus means he was significantly below average, right? For that time. And yet he's still worth a positive, you know, wins above replacement, which is kind of remarkable. Like that pitcher yeah. would not, would not, that would not work in today's game. No, that's, that's a great point. All right. So next you've got a pitcher again, we're, we're in the common zone here with the Minnesota twins, Mike Smithson. He was not bad. If I recall, he was a pretty decent major league pitcher. Let's see. Mike Smithson had uh, an eight-year career, spent the final two in Boston yep. in uh, 88 and 89. 88 was his first year. Yeah, he did not hurt the team, nine and six. Uh, apparently, he got a lot of run support, a 5.97 yeah. ERA and a 69 ERA plus. Yeah, and uh, we're catching him, unfortunately, at a time when, he, when his numbers and his war tailed off because he, he, he had some good numbers early in his career. So I think that must have been what I remembered of him <laughs> was his better, better performances rather than uh, towards the end there. 25 home runs surrendered in 126 and two-thirds innings. So, yeah, not, uh, not the greatest numbers, but let's see what that gets him. That gets him a minus 1.2 war. Um, again, everybody's got real stirrups and mustaches at this point. <laughs> so that'll only be a minus 0.1. So that'll take you down to 14.4. All right, your next guy, this is uh, one of my guys. We uh, we talk about, when we say the team in Atlanta, we call them the Hammers. 
uh, we call Cleveland the Guardians. We're just get out, getting out in front of the, the name changes. Sure. Uh, this guy is pictured here with the Pirates, but I remember him most with the Hammers because this guy is one of the smallest guys I ever saw play, and I think he's got one, maybe two career home runs. It's Raphael Belliard. Defensive specialist, right? Yeah, this guy is wee. He is very small. I remember his his head like rattled around in the batting helmet. They couldn't get one small enough for him. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Well, and he had a he had a real small glove too. Nicknamed Pac Man, five six one sixty. Wow. That's not that's not a big guy. No, two career home runs. He hit one in ninety seven and then one in eighty seven. And uh, I believe that the the one with the uh, with Atlanta, uh, when I worked for the Braves, they had that in the uh, Hall of Fame there, the, the Braves Hall of Fame. Right. So this is one of those, uh, you know, he has two more home runs than me kind of deal. Exactly. That's yeah. Right. I mean, he's uh, t- he is Babe Ruth compared to me. Um, oh. 1988. This is a, a typical Belliard year. I mean, you know, all glove, no stick. Only hit 213, a 55 OPS plus. But I'm going to guess his war is not going to be too bad because war does uh, take into account defense. So it's a 0.7 war. So you're in the positive. I cannot see stirrups because his name is covering them up. But he does have a mustache. So that will get you a plus 0.8. I'll take that. All right. Next, you've got a guy. He's got a good mustache here. This is just a headshot of pitcher for the Angels, Mike Witt. Mike Witt, yeah. Two-time All-Star. Unfortunately, yep. that was in 86 and 87. Yeah, I know, I just missed that. <laughs> Still, you know, he he pitched a lot. 13 and 16 with a 4.15 ERA. That's not too bad. 93 ERA plus. And that equates to a war of 1.5 plus the mustache is a plus 1.6. You are you, you've definitely slowed down, but you're you're still creeping up on Dave Dravecki there. Well, you can't you can't have all Hall of Famers, as you pointed out. You just don't want too many more negative guys, right? You want to always keep train moving here. So in 1984, against the Seattle Mariners, he struck out 16 during a complete game five hitter, and then on the final day of the season, he pitched a perfect game against the Rangers in Arlington Stadium. Wow! Struck nice. out 10, cool. 94 pitches to complete it. Jeez, what a different world we're in, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I'm also guessing no. that a lot of those uh, a lot of those Rangers were ready to start their uh, their winter <laughs> <laughs> yeah. offseason. Yep. But still, you just throw a perfect game. You've just thrown a perfect game. Not bad. All right. Next, we've got a guy with the Yankees. You've got a lot of your favorite team here. Uh, he's got a mustache, and he's got real stirrups. It is Jerry Royster. Jerry Rolls Royster. Ah, yeah. there you go. That was towards the end of his career. Actually, it was the end of his career. So he's not going to be worth a whole lot. But he wasn't a bad player at his at his best. Uh, apparently managed the Brewers for one season, part of one season in 2002. I don't remember that. Hmm. But apparently he did. 16-year career in the big leagues. That is great work if you can find it. Uh, finished with Atlanta in 1988. Appeared in 68 games. He was literally just kind of uh, taking up a spot. He played in almost every position, though. Uh, let's see, he played all three positions in the outfield, played some second, short, and third, and that equates to a war of minus 0.7. Uh, that'll be a minus 0.5 because of the mustache and the stirrups. Yeah, when you have a 22 OPS plus, that's uh, not going to help you very much, right? <laughs> yeah, that's... It's not what you're aiming for career-wise, no, no. No, no. How about this for some nepotism? Cousin of Greg Vaughn. 
Mm. And I can I can I get Greg Vaughn's Greg best. Va- now, if he was in the card, him? if he was on the card, we could do that. But yeah, I'd like to make a trade if I can. Also, played uh, spent some time in Korea. All right, now this is going to be interesting because you've got to turn back the clock card of a Hall of Famer. So Uh-oh. we're going to go back and we're going to look at the year that this card is, and I think you're going to be happy with this okay. because from 1963, it is. The man, Stan Musial. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. 63, wow. huh? Okay, it's at the end of his career, so it won't be as good, but still, yeah. I'll take it. Yeah, 42-year-old all-star, Stan Musial. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. That still had to be managed, like a Lifetime Achievement Award, though, at that point. Yeah, still managed an OPS Plus of 101, so he was above... Uh, above the average. Now, looking at his career here, he he was a rookie in 1941. He played through 1944 and then served in the military for one year. 1943 through the end of his career in 63, minus that one year that he didn't play, he was an all-star every single year. Yeah, he was crazy. Yeah, we talked about, again, like the inner circle of Hall of Famers. He's clearly in in that category, right? He's he's an all, all, all all-timer, right? All-time one- 28.7 28.7 war even at the age of 42 he still managed a 1.3 war and he is a hall of famer so he'll get you 2.3 on that nice interesting about uh stan Musial. he was afraid of the dark i believe that's well he probably didn't like night games i would guess <laughs> okay so that helps you next we have got a guy that uh, i remember with atlanta a Dion before Sanders that played for Atlanta. It is Dion James. Oh, sure. Okay. I remember I think that of, name. I think of him with both the Hammers and the Guardians, both of our teams that we call by other names. Let's see. 11 years in the big leagues. 1988 was with Atlanta. Appeared in 63 games. Played all three outfield positions and got some time at first base. Not much power. He didn't play all three outfield positions very well, as you'll find out when you look down at his war. (laughs) (laughs) A 93 OPS plus, so that's not too bad. But yeah, let's look at his war here. That is a war of minus 0.3. So yeah, not not great. Uh, Let's see, he does have a mustache and he's got real stirrups. So that'll only be a minus 0.1. Right, his his defensive war that year in '88 was minus two. So that single-handedly sunk, you know, sunk the number. Now, you're going to like this card. Uh, It is a leader's card for the Angels. So you've got two players on here. Now, one, I can easily pick out who it is. I think the other one might be somebody that we've already had in your pack here. So you've got Wally Joyner. Oh, nice. I think that's Mike Witt standing next to you. That might be Mark Langston. Jack Howell. Is that Jack Howell? Wow. Yeah, number 16 for that team. Ah, See, I was thinking it was a pitcher. Right. Nope, okay. Jack Howell. All right. I'll, so, I'll take Jack Howell there. That's not a bad that's not a bad player to have. All right. So Jack Howell in uh, 1988 hit 254, 16 home runs, 63 RBI. So he had some pop, a 110 OPS plus. That equals a war of 1.0. Let's then go look at Wally Joyner in uh, 1988. Good year for Wally Joyner. Hit 295, 13 home runs, 85 RBI, an OPS plus of 120, which is nice. Yep. And that'll get you a war of 3.2. So that's 4.2. Almost as good as, as a Hall of Fame card. That's pretty pretty solid. 
yeah, yeah. that's uh, that will bump you up to twenty two point seven, and you're breathing down Drabecki's back with and, and two I, cards I, left. Two cards, come on, baby, let's go. All right, so this is one of my guys that I always liked. He spent some time on the A's and the Giants, which is kind of rare. Here he is with the Brewers. It's Ernie. I call him Ernest Riles. Um, am I? Should I be optimistic here? Uh, probably not too optimistic. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, yeah. Let's not, not let's see. This. 88. He uh, spent his first year with the Giants. He hit 294. He was there a utility go. infielder. Uh, 79 games on base. 323. Kind of average. Not a whole lot of pop, but he still had a 111 OPS plus, and that equals a WAR of 2.2. Well, he was 2.2 with San Fran, but he was negative 0.2 from Milwaukee during that. Oh, season. Oh, that's right. So, he split so the gotta, season. There. Yeah, you got it. You got it. I hate yeah, that's, to bring that so up, you, but you shouldn't. Yeah, you shouldn't have told yeah, me. That. I got to be honest. So, so that's but still a two point zero, and he's got a little wispy mustache. So that'll be yeah, a two point nice. one. Nice. Wow. That's I'm surprised. I'll take that one. That's like that's like finding money in the uh, couch cushions right there. All right. So you have just passed uh, Dave Dravecki. You're at twenty four point eight. Now we've had we used to have another scoring system where we actually looked these cards up in a Beckett. This is your final card. And I think, well, this might have been worth money at the time. I'm not sure this is going to help you because it's a future stars card. It is Kevin Elster of the New York Mets, who was a very hot prospect. Yep. Left-handed first baseman, had some power. Since this is a future stars card, I'm not sure if he had played yet. You don't get future stats. Well, no, he, 1988 was his first full year in the big leagues. Oh, there you go. Appeared in 149 games. He only hit 214, an OPS plus of 75. Uh, and that equates to a war of 1.3. That will bring your final total up to 26.1. That's pretty so, solid, yeah? Yeah, so until I recalculate using our, our, you know, our updated scoring system, you sit atop of our uh, guest leaderboard. Awesome, awesome. Well, um, you, know, you gave me a choice of two packs. I'm glad I picked this one. Yeah, well, and the other one is more is more recent and has a historic Yankee insert, so it's probably a good good idea. We oh didn't boy! Okay, good, good, <laughs> good. That's a fun game. That's a really fun. I have to dig out. Like I've, I don't have any like unopened packs, but I've got boxes of you know of baseball cards. I probably should go through them. That, that's a fun game. I really enjoyed that. That was pretty cool. All right, so thank you once again for joining us, John. If you want to just once again uh, remind everybody where they can get a hold of your book, The Forgotten Game, Game Five of the 2004 ALC. Yes, Yankees at Red Sox. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. I appreciate that. Uh, it's available at Amazon, easily findable there. And then you can go to johnvampatella.com uh, if you would like uh, to buy it directly through my website, or if you would specifically like a signed copy, I'm happy to get that out to you. Uh, but either Amazon or the website, um, johnvampatella.com would be great. Awesome. John, thank you so much for, for being here. It was uh, a lot of fun. If I we love when people uh, get into the into the wax pack zeros, and uh, that's a good score. We'll see how we'll see how it uh, how long it hangs up there at top. Awesome! I appreciate you guys. Thanks so much for having me on. I had a total blast with you guys. Awesome! Great. Thanks, John. It was a pleasure. All right. Once again, thank you very much, John Vampatella. All of his information will be in the show notes, as we said about fifteen times during that interview. But I want to make sure that you do have a chance to pick up this uh, this book. It's really great. You should see Mark's copy looks like a uh, history book from from one of my school days, but I never wrote in my books. But there are dog ears, there are uh, page markers, there is stuff highlighted. It looks like he's 
had the book for like 20 years. But it's it's really interesting and uh, a really interesting read. And I really hope to have John back doing something else because uh, he, he his baseball knowledge falls right kind of where Mark and I's sweet spot is. But with that, let us start to wrap up the show. We appreciate everybody uh, sticking around and uh, listening to us each week. Again, appreciate all the, the well wishes when we missed our first week in almost three years. But we do appreciate every now and then we're just not going to be able to hit our mark. But uh, we are all over the social medias if you just can't get enough of us. You know, we were still there despite the fact we didn't record a show last week. You can find us at Two Strike Noise. That is at T-W-O Strike Noise on all the socials, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Twitch. Uh, you can also get a hold of us via email. It is Two Strike Noise at gmail.com. We look forward to uh, any interaction. If you want to send us a DM or, or just follow us. Uh, also, if you want to rate and review us, we really do appreciate that. It helps out immensely. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Once again, thanks to author John Vampatella for joining us. Mark has uh, gone to ice down the shoulder and the elbow and the knees and the back. And uh, so he is not here to say goodbye, but I am sure that he will uh, be back next week as well. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week on another episode of Two Strike Noise. <laughs>